0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the greatest glass of Amarula for your mind in the Southern Hemisphere, and dare we say it, perhaps round the globe. This side uh, of Mars. This side of Mars, and maybe even a little bit further. Really depends on how things are going on Mars these days. Yeah. Um, I'm half of your hosts, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, joined as always by the Right Honorable Gabriel Krauser. Uh, You see, I just listened to a National Review Editors podcast and uh, Rich Lowry, the host, always introduces Charlie Cook as the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook. And so that's why it's stuck (laughs) in my head now. (laughs) It's
1: it's, it's Gabriel David Krauser. Gabriel D. Krauser. Ah, yes. (laughs) Nicholas, you have even more middle names, I think, because you're such a wasp. Yes, I've got two. I've got two. George and Clay. Uh, Clay is a proper waspy middle name. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, I suppose, in some ways, um, it, is, it is also, actually, it's, it's, in terms of lineage, I'm more Irish on that side of the family, uh,
1: which is interesting. Um, on which note, can I just remind you of yes. perhaps the greatest um, expression of the writer's trade comes from an Irish poet, Seamus Heaney, who died a few years ago. His best friend was Paul Muldoon, who was the head of the Princeton. uh, I'm just going to say that again because I said Princeton just as something fell. (laughs) Paul Muldoon, who was the head of the Princeton art faculty and is a wonderful poet in his own right. Uh, Anyway, Seamus Heaney was definitely the most famous Irish poet in the last 50 years and laureated and Nobel and all that. Anyway, he's got this poem, Digging, where he... The poem is kind of about his father digging for potatoes and how wonderfully he could bear the lug and <laughs> pierce the potatoes and carry them around. And he sort of remembers taking his father a bottle of milk. His father downs the milk and then goes back to digging the potatoes. And it's so wonderful. He says, I can't quite be like my father and my father's... mild man and my old man's old man. But... Uh, Between my finger and my thumb, snug as a gun, I hold my pen and I'll keep digging with it. Ah, very good. You see, that's the Ah. people tune in for. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it's such a momentum, Mori. It's like you're a writer, you're going to die. Have you really been digging with your keyboard? How have you given up or are you still trying to dig through? so
0: in in what is i think a, a a a category that's usually not discussed if you were to rank all of the things that are super metal in catholicism memento mori would probably be the top <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the catholic paraphernalia that's produced around memento mori it's like skulls on everything
1: yeah no it's proper a... it's proper this is this is death shakespeare might have been a protestant but he <laughs> Well, there's, there's actually a thing theory in that is... he
0: was a crypto, that he was a crypto Catholic.
1: Yeah, I know. There's also a theory that uh, he's a woman.
0: Yeah, I, I think the crypto Catholic one though is more likely.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it yeah, is. It, it is a hard place and time to be. Uh, yes. So I think to your roots, Henry VIII had already done his, his, yeah, uh, done his, his moves, his little, his little break here. So.
0: I think let us let's move along uh, along from jovial topics of mirth and wonderment to uh, darker topics. Mirth,
1: wonderment, and death. Let's 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 yes. get back to life. Let's and go suffering. back to yeah, um,
0: and that is. I wanted
1: to ask you some questions. Something, you not- something that can make you actually wish you were going to die. He's talking about <laughs> the American Congress, but is that not where we're going first? No, no. Let's
0: let's 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 do the COVID stuff first. So I, I, you are a knowledgeable person about these things. So I'm going to ask you questions that I want to know. And hopefully our uh, listeners want to know some of them as well. Um, so the first thing is we've got this new thing, the Indian variant or the Delta variant, as suddenly everyone overnight seems to have decided to call it. I don't know how that happened, but that seems to be the case. Um, and one of the big... it's wreaking havoc right now, as anyone in Gauteng probably knows. I must say that in terms of my personal circles, um, the number of people affected by this wave seems to be much greater, which is unfortunate. Um, But one of the questions I have for you, Gabriel, is there's been a lot of talk about how this variant is more, um, it's easier, it's much more likely uh, than previous variants for you
1: to catch it even if you've already had COVID so is that true that is true um I, I, a lot of work is being done by the word much more yeah do, do, yeah do we know do we know what a percentage that is in sort of
0: raw numbers like
1: we we don't have it, it but it does look like I think from from what I can glean from reading a little bit of you of the European press and two entries to the BMJ British Medical Journal. It looks like it's probably about a thousand times more likely. Um, so, uh, That's a big number. yeah, maybe a hundred times. But so one way to think about that is, you know, if if your odds of reinfection were um, were one were zero point were one percent, now your odds are maybe six percent. Okay. So mm. it it looks like. Uh I, I think more likely you, you for, for some kind of reinfection, inclu- including asymptomatic, you're now looking at about a 10% reinfection rate, whereas the second wave was something like a 5% reinfection rate and getting the wild Wuhan virus twice was one in roughly one in a billion. So it's gone from like one in a billion wow. to one in a million to more than one in a thousand maybe if you go alpha, beta, gamma, delta, you know, alpha original to original is one in a billion. It really was something like one in a billion. And then something like one in a million for the British variant, something like one in a thousand for the South African variant, or maybe even seven in a thousand, somewhere in that order, maybe even one in a hundred. And now almost something like one in 10 right, uh, so depending on what your baseline is, it's a thousand times more or ten times more, uh, but still uh very it's still it's still if you have been infected you you're still doing much better right, and so, that's because it's very important to distinguish between the odds of reinfection and the odds of lethal reinfection, yes, and the odds of lethal reinfection remain at a level that's real, but Uh, kind of falls into what I've been increasingly calling background radiation. So this is just like a risk management point that there are some risks. Once you get to like one in 10,000, one in a hundred thousand, certainly one in a million, the risks are so low that they fall into a category that there's a whole bunch of other risks of that kind, like uh, the, the, driving the, the, around Joburg at night. Yeah, exactly. Or...
0: That, that, that's a benchmark that I see a lot of people using is, you know, how dangerous is, is it compared to driving? Because obviously the vast majority of us are pretty comfortable with driving, uh, and yet it's actually it's, it's a uh, it's pretty dangerous thing in some ways um, to do. You can get quite a lot of people do die from it.
1: Yeah. So and it's it's quite hard to figure out like what are the risks of, of driving it depends on how you quantify it. like the the risk per trip uh, can be in the sort of 1 in the 10 millions but the risk right. sort of over a month's driving can start coming down to sort of 1 in 100,000 that you'll have a serious accident um, Right. but but that but that's background radiation and background radiation just so that you know where that term comes from it's the it's the it's the fact that If you have a telescope pointing far enough into the distance, you stop seeing particular stars and you just see the sort of noise that emerges from the start of the universe. Because if you look far enough, you're looking back in time and you look far enough in any direction and you kind of see the first sort of few hours of the universe or whatever it is. And so background radiation, the reason that matters is for some purposes, you want to investigate background radiation. Um, and really figure out stuff about the start of the universe. But for most purposes, you want to calibrate your instruments so that they're not sensitive to background radiation, so that you can actually pick out the star versus sort of true night black behind it. Although the night sky is never really black because there's this radiation, you want to calibrate so that you can make that distinction because it's a useful distinction to make. So for risk management, you want to have some sense of when is the risk. You don't ever want to pretend that the risk is zero. There's just really not such a thing um so zero is not a useful number much like with herd immunity there's there's not such a thing as like uh enough people are infected that this thing's definitely going to go away because of the kind of mutations that it makes anyway my my prediction from last year start of this year has been that i don't think it'll go away um certainly from a personal risk management point of view you're not going to get your risk down to zero but there's background radiation risk so in terms of lethality in terms of the likelihood of being infected and then getting infected again and dying it seems to be background radiation. Uh, And that seems quite clear. And that's true both for reinfection and for vaccination. Even if you've just had one jab uh, of one of those that takes two jabs, um, your odds of dying have gone down to background radiation levels. The reason to get the second jab is largely to stop yourself from being a likely vector of picking up the disease and passing it on to someone else.
0: No, that's that's yeah I've've I've, read something recently which suggested that uh, the first jab of the Pfizer vaccine in particular was um, way more effective than it was originally thought even by Pfizer themselves I think as to uh, uh, helping to produce severity of symptoms and that kind Yeah. okay well that's that's you know some good news in there so some bad news um people might get sick again and that of course means presumably you could make other people who've never had it around you sick again but at the same time you yourself are very unlikely to you know
1: bite the big one Um, so and and to give some context to that if i can anticipate a question on this show i think kind of more than almost any, we've talked quite seriously about herd immunity. So there's some right. guys who talked about herd immunity like this and they, uh, and they did no help. They were like, we're the WHO or we're the, or we're the command council's advisors. You know, this is how it works. <laughs> guys, we've got a terrible lockdown and you've got to really mess up your life, but don't worry because one day we'll vaccinate 70% of the population and then the thing will disappear overnight because we will have right. reached herd immunity. Now that was stupid and we said that was stupid. There are various reasons that it's stupid. One of them is that while it's much harder for children to spread the disease, they still will. One of them is that there's a lot of vaccine hesitant people. Another one is that given the R naught, given the basic epidemiology of the wild strain of coronavirus, 70% is just not nearly a high enough number to read true herd immunity. That's just a high enough number that even if people acted normally, you would expect only minor flare-ups. You wouldn't expect the thing to rampage across society. Uh, And and people who are smart enough to know this were just uh, misrepresenting the calculation. Okay, so that was one way that it went wrong. Another way that it went wrong, Michael Levitt, I think was a bit guilty of this. South Africa's Nobel Prize winner and some of the, uh, maybe some of the panda guys um, who predicted the first wave would be the last wave. They kind of thought this thing is spreading amongst humans just in the same way that it's spread in a Petri dish. Behavior doesn't really matter. And if you think behavior doesn't matter, then by the time absent vaccines uh, in spring of 2020 in South Africa, you've seen a real dip in the viral spread. You must think we've reached something like herd immunity and it's not going to come back. So that was silly because it wasn't taking human uh, shifts in behavior into account and seeing how people get run out of money for staying at home or run out of patients for socially distancing. And that that will change things when people uh, change their attitudes to managing their own risk. Um, the right way to think about it has always been that like, f- the first fact of epidemiology is that once someone's infected, um, they are less likely to get reinfected. And so it's slightly more difficult for the virus to spread. And that right. is from the very first infection. So there's always been, as long as we have known about coronavirus, there's been some level of herd protection. And then the thing is to figure out how much. And Discovery, I see last week, or this week, we're still recording this on Sunday, came out with an estimate that 62% of South Africans have been infected, and that's very much in line. They estimated that about a quarter had been infected by the spring of last year, that about half had been infected by late summer. And now in the winter, they think 62%, which is kind of retrospectively, maybe pulls down their earlier estimates a little bit looking on the lower ends to get yeah, to 60%. Yeah. But not really outside of the ranges well, that there they are, produced. Yeah. But if the there thing a small is number
0: of, of reinfections happening that might also
1: uh, mess up their exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That'll bring it exactly in line. So and here's the th- yeah and here's the difficult thing. So a month ago I was asked to make a call on this and my call was South Africa's third wave is not going to be as great as its second and first in general uh but gauteng and places in particular where people have had where the bourgeoisie have been where people have had the wealth (laughs) to buy themselves out of you know i think what some americans call people in the laptop economy yes uh where a significant portion of the population is in the laptop economy and so that's not just going to be in Tank, but it's clearly the most in Gauteng because this is where the most financial services are and all of the things that go along with that, lawyers and accountants and all that kind of stuff. It's just a very serious portion of our population.
0: Which would explain why someone like me, who has lots of, most of my friends and family are in the laptop economy, would see far more people infected this time because these
1: are the ones who, this is the population that hasn't been ravaged by the first two waves. So they're the most vulnerable. And me too. Right. Over a dozen friends have been infected in the last month. There have been some deaths. It's uh so you know, my call was, you know, I think in general it's actually not going to be that bad. Eastern Cape is is really gonna struggle to produce Eastern Cape would have to work at it, would have to deliberately have like spread the virus <laughs> meetings um to to redo what uh, happened there in December. But that in Kharteng, if people aren't careful, and around the country where people have being in the luxurious position of being like, how can Discovery, how can Gabriel keep saying that? Like, he's spoken to professors who have said this, and science professors have said it in public, and Discovery saying in public that they think a quarter, then half, now nearly two thirds of the population have been infected. How can they say it? I don't know that many people have been infected? Right, if you've been in that right. situation, then you've also been in the kind of bubble that's uh, that's the most likely to get burst hard, uh, and that does seem to be what's happening. Uh, I think Delta has something to do with that. It makes it easier for... The thing to remember is that people, the, the, the virus inoculates people in a much more efficient way than vaccines if what you're going for is reducing spread. Because the virus is most likely to infect people who are the most likely to be connectors. You know, people who either so party is, really hard or have jobs yeah. that are likely to put them in the middle of a of a bicycle wheel where it's like this one person gets infected and then he infects 12. And the average person right. after that only affects one, but he's like a super spreader. The virus is the most likely to get the super spreaders first and therefore struggle along. And then in, in some ways that helps you uh, get protected. where The vaccines are, are the most likely to go to, to other people, despite – the way we've tried to prioritize it but once you once 10 percent of those super spreader people uh i don't know the, the kind of taxi driver who sort of wipes sneezes onto his hands before he gives change <laughs> to the people yes. or who, like a who, dj who, who whenever, you know, will... when,
0: whenever he wants to sneeze he turns around and sneezes back into the taxi <laughs> <laughs> yes it <They're> just
1: <laughs> oh, some people are like that and uh and those guys are the most likely to be in, infected in the first place and therefore to kind of really put a dampener on spread in their region um but 10% of them so, let's say 10% of them can now get infected again in a way that can allow them to spread the disease again a little bit that does open up a significant channel for the virus uh that and the fact that people have uh it's not just that people have gotten complacent some people have gotten complacent it's also that you're playing a game of odds and evens, right? You're playing the game of, of luck Every time you go out if you go out in a way that gives you a 1 in 100 chance of getting the virus um, If the virus is in the room then Okay, you can play that game ten times and you'll probably be fine But by the time it's been a year and a half and you're playing it a hundred times uh, odds are you are actually going to catch it right so
0: I, I want to pick up on this thing you said about how uh, the virus in a lot of ways is more effective at protecting you than having it in the past is more effective than the vaccines.
1: Um, because so, the general... so I meant that in a community sense, but now you, yes, you want community to sense. It in a
0: pers- personal sense. Right, in a personal sense. So the impression that one has gotten from the current uh, official pronouncements is that the Pfizer vaccine at least and possibly some of the others as well is more effective than actually being infected previously in protecting you from the Delta variant. Is that true or what, what's, think what's, your, what's your take on it?
1: I have looked into that a little bit. I don't have a strong opinion because the data that I'm looking at is not strong. Right, it's possible. Right. Generally speaking, the best protection is uh, natural immunity through a full frontal attack with the, with the virus. So that's
0: where you get proper symptoms and everything rather than being asymptomatic.
1: Okay. okay. Yes. And so the virus getting vaccinated might be better for people who otherwise, you know, so statistically since quite Mm. a few people get asymptomatic, they might not develop the full antibody and T-cell and memory B-cell repertoire of defense. For those who've probably been sick it's hard to find a reason to think that they would be uh, worse off than someone who was vaccinated. Um, but these kinds of things do strangely happen. But usually, I mean, whenever they do happen, there seems to be some etiology. Uh, this is Etiology is just the scientific term for like a causal explanation. And right. one of the confusing things about me- medical science in general and vaccinology in particular is that we don't, the best scientists in the world don't always have etiological accounts for why things work the way they do. So sometimes it just comes to be like, you know, give the guy vitamin C. We don't really know how this works, but it does. There's a statistic signif- statistical significance to, to its beneficent effects. And so we run with that. Uh, much like the placebo effect, right? The placebo effect is just a scientific fact. Very few things have been as well demonstrated from as many different studies as the placebo effect. But we don't have a good etiological account of how the placebo works. So right. demanding a pl- demanding an etiological account of why vaccination would be better than than proper infection recovery uh, is is asking for a high standard that might not necessarily be met. And even if it isn't, we should still go with vaccines are better if that's what the data shows. But I'm not. It's not clear to me that the data do show that. Um, and that is. Partly, even if you discount the asymptomatic infections because of the weakness of the studies that have been done in this regard, Um, and the BMJ started complaining about this in February and have since managed to get some studies, and they seem to come to conflicting conclusions. Um, So in other words, I don't know how it could work. It doesn't seem to make sense. It is the kind of thing that could happen um okay if it if it did happen to be the case that vaccines better than asymptomatic infection that would make sense if it turns out that vaccine is better than symptomatic infection that would be a big surprise and that would be the kind of thing that scientists would then study for the next couple of generations because okay. um it would be super interesting yeah
0: no that does that's very interesting um i wonder if Any of that has to do with the fact that at least the ones that have been been talked about so far seem to be the mRNA ones, which is a relatively new vaccine technology that seems to have that effect. But um, I have one last question on this topic before we move on, and that is, uh, there's also been a suggestion, although it's not been very well reported or clearly stated, that this thing, A, may be more dangerous in terms of its likelihood to produce a negative outcome on the sort of uh, compared to the previous variants and b that uh it's affecting younger people more severely than it then yeah. the previous strains have
1: so both of those seem true um both of those fit with uh with um coronavirus research preceding this uh SARS-CoV-2 SARS-2 um there was this bad idea, and this is again something we've talked about on the show, there was this bad idea being put out by William Kizir, by the WHO, by the Command Council in general, that, the vi- that you can just expect this virus to adapt to become less and less lethal. And that was... I came out pretty strongly against that after speaking to a, a virologist at one of South Africa's better universities who directed me to some research coming out of the uk over the last 50 years it's it's just not how things work it is the case from basic darwinian axioms i mean here's why people think that's true right they think okay i know how darwin works if this virus is killing its hosts then those hosts can't spread the disease so if there's a form of the virus that's more or less the same but it's not killing its hosts then it's likely more likely to spread, and then that one will come to outcompete. So, once you go through different generations, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, you'll get uh, forms of the virus that are smarter in the sense of not, not um, yeah, biting the hand that feeds them. Right. Not killing the goose that lays the golden egg.
0: Because um, right. of that idea that the perfect virus is one that literally just sits in your body forever, replicating itself, but never gets attacked by your immune system.
1: It yeah, is. like a large portion of your DNA is a kind of a virus like that. It literally does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's there for the ride. It's lasted millions of years. Right. Um, turns out being a mooch, like the 80-20 rule also applies to biology. 20% of the genes do 80% of the work. The other 80% of the genes just do nothing. And that's not as bad as being a communist or or whatever else <laughs> a gene might be. So it's fine. So that idea is... There's, there's It's not coming from nowhere, this, this idea mm. that, that that the virus is likely to evolve, to become less lethal. And it gets expression in something like Ebola, which is so quickly lethal that it really does often become its own break. Uh, yeah. Stop. Not, not just
0: in killing its hosts, but in causing such sheer terror and panic that people kind of will clamp down on it in a yeah. very serious way. No and one... Music- there, there's, there's very few people saying about Ebola that, you know, it's uh, a made-up thing to... Yes,
1: Bill Gates invented yeah. Ebola. <laughs>
0: yeah, Bill Gates invented it in a lab or something,
1: right? <laughs> so the problem is precisely in that difference, is 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 that the, the infection fatality ratio of SARS-CoV-2 is something, you know, it's still he- heavily disputed, but let's say between 0.1% and 0.3%. Right. So it's so low that it could get 10 times more lethal before it starts hitting the point where very old-fashioned kind of evolutionary, the kinds of models that actually are good because they've been going for a long time and have been tested against evidence and refined, not these kinds of models that uh, we've seen for the last year. The old-fashioned models um, would predict that you really have a long way to go in higher lethality before you start worrying about, before the virus has a selective pressure for being less lethal. Right. So uh, the, the, that doesn't mean SARS-CoV-2 is gonna be the kind of killer it is now in five years, even if it sticks around. It means that we will adapt. And the way we adapt is by dying. That's how evolution works. People who can't take it die. Uh, people who can take it, get it, survive. Then an, adapt- an adapted form Delta, you've got, let's say a 5% chance. 5% seems like the most realistic estimate coming from Germany. You've got a 5% chance of getting reinfected. Okay, that's five in 100, that's one in 20. That's actually quite a lot of people, You know, every 20 super spreaders, one of them is gonna get it and then give it to 20 people or whatever. So that'll really help the virus keep alive. Um, but it's not as deadly statistically. And then in five years time, there'll be a version the, and this is the great science that came out of the, the, the UK they had like a flu and colds laboratory where they'd deliberately go and infect people with flus and colds and then infect them with older versions and newer versions and do all kinds of human trials best best kinds of trials hard ethically to pull off these days but uh, I suppose <laughs> <laughs> the British lords and the British working class convened in the 60s to do some <laughs> useful science uh, and I don't think anyone died Anyway, uh, what they did find is that for coronaviruses in general, five years is a pretty good average turnaround time. If you give it five years, the variant that's around will infect you just the same as if you'd never had the original. So by the time alpha, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, all the way to omega, omega is the end of the alphabet, that's five years. Once you've got omega, doesn't matter if you've had alpha, it's all the same, but if you've had like, if you had it two years before that, then you'll be much better off, so this matters, because uh, in terms of costing vaccines, and this has been clear, I mean, this is what like guys like, um, anyway, people from Stanford, and um, MIT, and Oxford have been talking about from the beginning, is that if you choose the vaccination route, the mass vaccination route, then you re- then the odds of getting rid of this virus are small. It's possible, but it's really, really small. So what you're really going to have to do is, va- is you really will have to vaccinate everyone every few years because mm. uh, getting the J&J vaccine or the Pfizer or whatever it is today in five years' time is probably not going to do anything for you. And that means that in five years' time, if you don't re-vaccinate people, a significant portion are going to be like half the population is going to be as vulnerable as everyone was at the start of 2020 to COVID. And that has caused 3 million deaths and and sort of unaffordable from a public health management perspective. So I think we're in it for the long haul and people who don't like getting vaccinated are going to have to hope it really is a time for them to start hoping that they get this thing now uh, rather than later. Mm. Because the longer you wait, the more likely it seems like it's going to be for a a while. It seems the longer you wait, the more deadly the thing is going to be when it gets you. So I would have been happy to have gotten the first version. By the time it gets uh, to the end of next year, I think someone my age is going to be sitting in a very hairy situation if they get it. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's... um, Yeah, well, Even people, to... some people worry about, I have I have got some very smart friends who keep sending me stuff about reasons to worry about mRNA vaccines giving you cancer in a decade. And I'm reading them because I'm curious. I want to know. I don't want to turn away from things that are inconvenient. Uh, but I but I think it would have to actually go quite a way uh, to to changing my mind because my my risk calculation is not just about my odds. Of getting COVID now I'm much less worried about spreading it because the older people that I care about have all been vaccinated Uh, so just from a very self interested like obviously I don't want to spread it Mm. to anyone but those are the people I'm the most likely to spread it to because I do live a very secluded life Um, but in terms of selfish purely selfish risk management I've never been that worried about getting this thing but as the, as the clock keeps ticking, I get more and more worried because these variants are uh, more fecund. They reproduce quicker in the body, which means they're more likely to trigger a cytokine storm, an inflammatory overreaction, uh, which is potentially deadly, and more and more likely to uh, deliver permanent lung tissue damage to disrupt other organs. Being a healthy 32-year-old, you know, it's still better than being a healthy 42-year-old, but it's like that number keeps coming down. If at first it was the 65s, then it's the 55s on beta, then it's the 45s on gamma. Now, even 40s in delta are really looking at a risk that's beyond background radiation. And if you give it another few cycles, and I don't think we have any way not to do that. I just don't think the world has it figured out. To stop that from happening, I think it'll get to the point where someone my age is really seeing a, a more than background radiation risk of dying. Hmm. Okay, that's that's the sad news. The good news is hmm. that uh, I don't know what the good news is, Nick. The good news is that if you, <laughs> if you, the good news is that for now, if you've been infected or you've been vaccinated, uh, you can pass it on, and that's like scary morally, but in terms of your own personal health. Uh, you, you, you really, your risk is background radiation level on the best available evidence.
0: All right. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty useful to know. Um, and obviously, uh, we'll keep watching this and hopefully we reach the peak soon and then, uh, we can go back to a little bit more normality, which would be nice. Um, so we were going to talk about America. We haven't talked about America much recently. Uh, And I was listening to some uh, sort of right-wing American podcasts and uh, they were just talking about the latest big piece of legislation which is passing through the U.S. and that is this planned infrastructure bill. So infrastructure is kind of one of those things that both sides of the American political spectrum kind of can agree on for different reasons. Um, And it's one of those things that you're pretty likely to be able to get people from both sides to support. So I think Biden wanted to spend something like $6 trillion on infrastructure, um, which is a lot, (laughs) (laughs) like a lot, a lot. Uh, And that 6 trillion was also going to include such infrastructure projects as uh, childcare, which is not really an infrastructure project, but it was included in the package (laughs) for some reason. Um, And Uh, there was a lot of negotiation because remember in the U.S. to pass certain things through the Senate you can't pass everything through the Senate but you can pass uh, uh, some things on a 50 50 votes which is half, 50 plus 1 and you can also pass something pretty conclusively if it's got 60 votes so that means you would need in, in the current Senate 10 Republicans to vote for it a lot of negotiation and the Republicans, at least 10 of them, agreed to vote for an infrastructure bill that was, I think, less than a trillion dollars, but still, you know, a lot of money. Like I, no one was spending this amount of money in a single package, even just a few years ago. Uh so it would have been a pretty yeah. big win for the Biden administration. Huge. Yeah. He he, of course, hosted. Uh he did a uh, you know, on the verge of signing this thing, having agreed the deal, he hosted at the White House. Members of his party and a few of the Republicans who had agreed to sign it in a sort of ceremony, saying, "Look, old America is back. We're able to negotiate once again with each other. We don't just all hate each other, and we've created this wonderful piece of legislation. And everyone is accepting we've got it. And it's bipartisan
1: support. Yeah,
0: bipartisan support. It's it's so good, it's so good. And you know, there were Republicans there as well, so it was like all good feelings and warm things. Then about two hours later." Biden gives a press conference uh, and says, oh, and by the way, um, there's this pro- process in the Senate called budget cloture, something like that. Um, but that basically allows you to pass certain amounts of spending with 50 votes, 50 plus one, rather than with 60. And, now, if uh, I everything remember right,
1: what happened is, like, because of all the fiscal cliffs, they removed yes. the filibuster for some budgetary things so that they can just move exactly, it. Exactly, Yeah. Yeah, and that
0: this this is abused very much to get around having to pass the 60 vote threshold all the time. Um, And Biden basically said, oh, yeah, and everything the Republicans didn't agree to put in the the big infrastructure bill, we're just going to cram into that one and force down their throats anyway. So sucks for you guys. Which um immediately oh, caused a budget <laughs> <laughs> immediately caused a bunch of the Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, who was at the bipartisan ceremony to say he's made us look like fools. I'm not signing anything. Hmm. So here's here's and this this feeds into this is the topic that they were talking about in those podcasts, and I think it's one that we should maybe discuss a little bit as well. Biden runs in the Democratic primary in a field where everyone else is trying to be woker than thou, for the most part.
1: Um, yeah, no. Uh, I'm serious. Even my yeah. favorite Pete Buttigieg wants to pack the Supreme Court. And
0: Right, know. exactly. It's uh,
1: There was lots of, lots of you know... Um, Everyone finds their own way, but it's like, it really is yeah, a race if, for the left poll.
0: If the you most follow, radical, if you followed, transformative... If you followed the Democratic primary, you'd think that trans women of color were, like, the largest voting bloc in America, because <laughs> how much attention was paid to to that sort of identity yeah. politics stuff. Um, So he runs against all of this And he doesn't do well with white Woke woke voters in the US Democratic primary at first But then minority voters come out Typically middle aged black voters In in places like South Carolina And by the end of it he's pretty Conclusively actually swept the board And he wins this big um, Big number in the Democratic primary as a moderate, right? This is how Biden wins the yeah. Democratic nomination. He then goes to run against uh, Trump where in the swing states like Florida, like Ohio, like all these places, what are the ads that he's putting out? They're saying things like, I'm a moderate. I have long experience in Washington and w- working together with both sides. I'm going to bring normality back to American politics. Trump has divided us. I'm going to unite us again. This is his whole shtick, right? He also never says anything like... Decline, Old Uncle release. Joe. Yes. Old Right. He never says defund the police. He never says uh, any of, any of the really far out there stuff that was being kicked Pigs around. Pigs in at blankets the time.
1: fry like bacon. He's not into yeah, that. exactly,
0: exactly. He's, he he right? is
1: secretly just like a conservative black guy, and because yeah. conservative black dudes have for the last fifty years been in the Democratic Party, that's where he is. But he's not really for the Democratic Party. He's for America. So uh, what
0: happens on election day? Trump gets. Um, the second-largest number of votes that an American president has ever gotten, uh, and Biden gets the largest number of votes that an American presidential candidate has ever gotten in an election, Uh, managing to beat even Trump's ability to turn out people who usually don't vote, and he manages to secure the nomination on basically the same margin that Trump won it with last time. Hmm. Interesting stuff, right? So he has been rewarded electorally for being a moderate, right? regardless of whether his policies that he actually had in his documents and stuff were moderate. uh, That was his, that was his PR pitch. That was his PR push. So why, when he's about to win a big bipartisan victory, which is going to still be an enormous increase in infrastructure spending, very much in line with his party's priorities when uh you know he's been rewarded for not going too hard on race stuff does he suddenly embrace racial rhetoric once he gets into office um on basically every issue biden has been far more partisan and far more left-wing except foreign policy which is an interesting exception right in foreign policy terms he's been fairly centrist in fact on a couple of issues he's even been fairly right-wing which has been a rather uh, yeah. weird sort of dichotomy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I saw a piece in 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 a lefting US publication that said where the question was uh why is why is Biden so different to Obama on foreign policy? Wasn't Obama his former boss? And then the piece is all like, yeah, look, he Obama was his boss and in a lot of ways he respects Obama and they had a cordial relationship, but he's always been very different to Obama. He's always been much more conservative when it comes to foreign policy and he got the votes this time, not Obama. So he's fully entitled to do what he wants to do. So there's this like weird kind of milky toast apology for Biden not being super woke, uh right at the G7 and so on.
0: So yeah, it's all very weird. Um why has he embraced this this fairly left wing uh give give
1: me my, your theory. My theory is something like this. Um, the esteem market is a real thing and one of the more useful things one can do because the esteem market has been understood in terms like cool and hip and sexy and fashionable that are very important terms. And it's important to understand uh terms like gaslighting, which is, you know, gaslighting is just an esteem economy description description, right? It's just saying here's how the esteem market works people get rewarded for saying something that's not true to such an extent that you actually start believing lies because that's what everyone else is saying. And if you say any alternative, then you get punished. So gaslighting is a great term. And I'm very glad for those people who came up with it. And that kind of analysis should not be reserved either to the left or the right. It's just the kind of thing that does happen. Uh, But there are also more conventional old school economics terms that need to be Applied to the esteem market, which is just monitoring the same kind of thing, a scarce resource that's being competed for by different parties. And one of the most prevalent uh, f- phrases or units of analysis in my lifetime in market economics has been quarter on quarter thinking. And this is the thought that big companies. Uh, report their results every quarter to their shareholders. They say, what kind of profits have we made? Uh, What kind of dividends have we paid out? And so they don't invest in research and development. They don't invest in their staff. They don't invest in strategies for adding value to their customers that are going to take a while to roll out.
0: They're basically appealing to day traders to make a quick buck and then move on without investing in the company.
1: Yes. And for a while it works, but eventually it just becomes silly because you're not making the long term investments. Your time horizon is just wrong, uh, which is to say the real world is still there a year later. And you weren't thinking about a year later. You were just thinking about the next quarter. And so it becomes a little bit like someone who drinks too much coffee to stay awake and pulls all nighters. You know, it's kind of exciting as a student and in your 20s. Yes, it's even in your 30s, I feel like I've pulled a couple. But it becomes very—you really start feeling the the burn <laughs> on the other end when you now have nothing left in the tank, yeah. but there's still lots to cover.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing like waking up after pulling an all night or, 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 or standing up in your chair after pulling an all nighter, and you feel like
1: you want to die. <laughs> you, yeah. You're like, give me some coronavirus now, please. And then, and then instead, you get like 10 emails in your in your in your in your in tray, and they're like, like things that you have to do by Wednesday. And it's only Monday, so you're like, oh, that's fine, but like it's not fine because I have to I have to, I have to catch up I on have sleep to, now, I just have to suffer for a while. <laughs> So I think that's I think that's a problem that people have in their personal lives and it's a problem businesses have. And it's a problem in the esteem market. But because the esteem market is not often robustly discussed, it's a problem that is exacerbated. You know, one of the things about these problems is the more you talk about them, in a way you kind of arm yourself, you figure out how to deal with them. And that hasn't happened in the Democratic Party, for example. Also, it hasn't really happened in the Republican Party. Uh, but I think what's going on with Biden is that he... He understands that he is in a position to run again in four years' time and that if it's not him, it'll be someone from his team and he's in a good position to win or someone from the Democrats. And he understands that one would like by then not to have triggered a terrible inflation by overspending and on the basis of borrowing where you end up paying sort of funny interest or free money to... People who are already wealthy and thereby inflating the stock market and the bond market. He understands that uh, you need some to deliver some hard medicine uh, to an ailing body politic. And that part of that hard medicine must come in the rhetorical form of alienating your ultra-left-wing base. I think he does understand that. And I think his best advisors understand that if they permanently appease the defund the police types they're just going to get more and more backlash. And we've saw in New York little uh, special election uh, that the Democrats got their fingers a bit burnt uh, right. on that kind of basis. So he knows that the best bet for the next election is to pay attention to the fundamentals and try and address them. But what the consequence will be of that is a short-term denunciation is, is a quarter on quarter loss because the, uh, the ultra lefties will slam him for being uh, just another white politician who gets in on all kinds of promises and then doesn't deliver. Right, right, right. right. And so given that choice of like looking at the short-term costs and benefits, and the short-term benefit, there's no, it's all benefits. Like everyone on his side really loves him. All the loudest voices love him. And there's lots of money that you can then use to sort of uh, patronize your way through things. It's only in the midterm that you really start seeing the costs. And and that kind of midterm analysis seems to be uh I don't know, it just takes it takes guts and brains to act on right. a longer time horizon than everyone around you. And that's what people often call for when they call for vision and leadership is someone who's willing to make a stand and say yes. Look here, this is very tempting. you know. Do what he did. Um, say, look, we've got this bipartisan thing. That's an easy thing for everyone to get behind. And then to come back two hours later and say, guys, I've just gotten this meeting where the Democrats are like, you know, but you're not giving us like 80% of the things we wanted and we really want those things. And, and I had to tell them, and I'm going to tell the American people, we can't get everything we want right now. When I said that I'm a moderate, I meant it. And being a moderate means giving very bad news sometimes. You can't have the milk and the cookies and the ice cream on top and not feel sick five minutes later. You can choose three no. out of the four, but you can't have all four. And that's life. And no. um, old Uncle Joe, I've been around for 80 years, and I just know you can't get it all. So you got to get what you can, when you can, as you can, in a way that sets you up to get it again and that's not what we're doing right here so i had to tell him take it easy take it easy like old joe and that would have been great leadership i'm not surprised that he didn't do that because to my mind there's been little um there's been little in his in his career really overall very much little in the last decade um to suggest that he has that capacity and particular he seems to have a weak spot for a kind of racial um a racially based plea um for for help
0: so so i i have a theory too yeah um that i just want to go into and i think that it's when you understand so uh, there's this obsession in in the way we talk about american politics to talk about personalities this is the Trump administration. We, we call it the Trump administration. We, we define it against Trump. We say, you know, the president is going to set the agenda and all these kind of things. But I think in reality, particularly when you don't have very detail-oriented presidents, um, which has been true definitely of Trump and is probably yes. true of Biden too, uh, that <laughs> basically the staff actually set the direction of policy almost yeah. entirely. Mm-hmm. And this, ex- ex- for me, this explains why, th- even though I didn't think much of Trump as a political leader, um, his administration did a lot of things I agree with. Because I think that his administration reflected the party he came from. It reflects a lot of the ideas he came from. A lot of the policies, uh, you know, were, were 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 in line with normal Republican policies. And that's uh, th- that's 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 actually why you could sometimes see the Trump administration very publicly fighting with itself. Uh, because mm. the sort of general staff had produced a policy and then some of the people close to Trump would be like, No, wait, this is against what we want to do. And then they'd fight with each other. So I think uh part of what's happened here with Biden is that because at the end of the day he's more interested in I don't know, swanning about and being, you know, awesome. the great healer or whatever. With the shades. <laughs> yes, with his shades. Um that what his that his party the the young lines in his party whatever the mainstream of his party sort of elite and partisan ranks, which are very affected by the AOC crowd by the, the, the yeah. far left crowd, um, have have basically run the show, and, uh, and perhaps a more hands on president might have been able to distract from that, but he's not. And I think that that has probably produced this result. And so you've gotten basically the capture of uh, the most powerful position in America by a type of sort of slightly woke, uh, Twitter-obsessed lefty, which was was amusingly always the thing that uh, Trump supporters said would happen if Biden was elected.
1: Yeah. I like that. So maybe we can synthesize these two analyses by saying something like this. You've got an administration, the meat and bones of which is largely committed to a project that both requires spending six trillion dollars at a time, because they really want American government intervention as a proportion of GDP to be much more like Sweden uh, or something than it is like America is today. And want that to happen in an alienating way because their politics is preconditioned on the thought of partisanship, of antagonizing. Yeah, if and if Republicans way. are angry, then yeah, you're then doing you're doing your right. job, right? <laughs> so you've got that at the at the you know, those guys are really manning the ship and by guys are those dudes, gender neutral. Um, and then in the presidency that itself is a gender neutral term anyway, sorry. I agree. <laughs> and then in the presidency itself uh you have um people that are kind of more interested in the short term swings of fashion than in the mid term investments of political capital which is the old fashioned phrase for what you do as a real leader when you make a decision that's going to be unpopular for a bit but whose consequences will be popular and who who, whose consequences will therefore vindicate the original decision in a number of years. So those those two forces combined—a kind of uh, a fashionista face with a with a quite insistent and dogmatic uh, administrative base—yeah, combined in this way, I think I think that seems plausible. I mean, I think the real question is. My my question about that is is basically boils down to this. If America's I I have long been the most weirdly respectful person of war that I've known because of my reading of Thomas Piketty's work on World War One and World War Two and the and the efficiencies that it introduced—that sort of just turns out like disrupting every supply chain in the world, killing significant port of the population, devoting the energies of most, almost you know, most young men and and most young people in general to 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 the art of war and of of, of killing—just um, has had the surprising effect of of making economies thereafter much more innovative and dynamic and productive. So I've often thought there's this weird thing about calamities, which is that after calamities, you can expect much greater levels of productivity because you get more efficient. And there are various ways of disambiguating this. My two favorite are the green revolution, uh, you know, the development of nitrates and other um, fertilizers that are chemically artificially produced uh, that was sort of byproduct of uh, developing explosives just meant that if you look at the, Tons per hectare uh, of of grain, cereals, and so on that you can produce uh, versus the growth in the human population. Although the human population has been growing exponentially, our, our productivity, our agricultural productivity has grown even faster than that. It's just one of the very few things that has stayed ahead of the curve, as it were. And that is very much a product of World War II. Very, very, very much. Another one is Alan Turing, a queer academic semi-autistic kind of awkward guy who would have been stuck in an ivory tower were it not for world war ii Uh, he'd already been trying to invent the computer but he'd been a little bit locked out bring in world war ii and he gets the resources he needs to really invent the computer from that invention we get you know, badger hoe. People had been talking about computers for 100 years before, but it really takes World War II to get the thing going, and the internet comes out of the military and all that kind of crap. Okay, so calamities. Maybe, cold, maybe coronavirus does create these calamities that introduce a lot of efficiencies. People learn to order things online instead of going to brick-and-mortar stores, and that really is more efficient. Okay, it's nice for Amazon for a while, but really it distributes – uh, not as much money spent on going on conventions. When people do go on holidays, it's like less for business, more for actual pleasure. So it's not as often that people travel, um, but it does actually become much, much more efficient. Let's just say that adds 5% efficiency to the world's economy. That is huge. 5% distributed over five years means America doesn't grow 2%. It grows at 3%. You know what I mean? Or 4% even. Right. Yeah, if you have that kind cool. of growth, if they if coronavirus turns out to be the greatest—and not just coronavirus, but the lockdowns that went with it—if that turns out to be the greatest blessing since World War II, and I mean that very much, with, 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 with—I think quite a sincere empathy and understanding of all the millions that were killed in World War II, and, and the much less who were killed this time—if it turns out to be such a blessing, then maybe all, then maybe Biden's gamb—Biden's gamble—will play off. And, and and my sign-off on that point is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt took over America in the 30s, doesn't seem on The economists I Respect Most's account to have dug America out of the hole that it was in from the Great Depression, expanded the Great Society, but didn't really get economic growth going. And even sympathetic Democrats agree. World War II digs the great society out of its problems it creates such a boon in productivity that the fact that the American government has gone from occupying you know seven percent of gross national product to 20 percent of gross national product uh, and much less efficiency it doesn't matter because gross national product just grows so fast thereafter world war ii was the biggest gift that the democrats ever got in a way insofar as FDR is their greatest president of the 20th century, and he was, and insofar as the New Deal was the greatest policy um, bouquet that they ever offered, and it was. So maybe coronavirus on a smaller level does something like that for Biden. That's, I think, the point to watch out for people who are on the center, center center-right, maybe even center-left, certainly people on the far-right. Um people who worry about this left wing drive uh and think it's right. unaffordable need to just think explicitly about whether it might become affordable because the, the global lockdown uh might perversely have produced such efficiencies that what you once thought you couldn't afford, you now can. Weird idea. It mm, is a weird but idea. But it has a precedent, it has a precedent in in FDR and the World War Two
0: yeah uh, i think i think though we must be careful drawing conclusions from what is ultimately a pretty limited data set we haven't oh, had modern much. economies for very long and we haven't had modern wars for very long and we also have only had one world war 2 <laughs> so <laughs> it,
1: uh,
0: it could it could it could skew things up. so 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 um, so
1: just i i put this idea out there if i can knock it down hmm. the reason i don't think it's true is because If Piketty is right, for example, as a nice lefty, uh, well, look, regardless of whether you agree with
0: Nice lefty is an interesting way of describing it. No,
1: I don't think he's very nice. I really resent how he's spoke at the (laughs) Sweater conference. Um, No. What his data shows very clearly, and he's not the first person to show this, the biggest costs in World War II were to financial assets. So every single Russian bond in World War One gets written off. In World War Two, it's something even greater than that. You know, everyone who owns, every Brit who owns shares in a German company, or every French person who owns shares in an Italian car manufacturer, all that kind of stuff, all that international cross investment goes out the window, and domestic investment also. You get fifty, you get fifty pence on the pound for 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 what you're. Initial share value was, and you get inflation to whittle it away further. But really, so you see capital, total wealth as a proportion of GDP is like five, six times as much as GDP going into World War II, and it comes out two times as much. And half of that loss is just financial losses, it's just people losing the value of their investments because either the factory was directly bombed, but much more likely because. The property rights that protected your relationship to that factory have been destroyed by the complete um, right. annihilation of international respect property rights. So that the argument from the from the lefty, and I think this argument is interesting, is that that is part of what produced the great productivity boom that you see thereafter is that you don't have this like ensconced short term is capital that's just sheet seeking out short term games you've kind of cut the fat and you've gotten a much leaner machine and then that figures out how to grow into new potential space you don't have that with the coronavirus you have the opposite. people have been watching very carefully for consumer price inflation in the u.s you are seeing some it's not really anything at this stage beyond just catching up with what was lost out last year but what you're definitely seeing is more than just a straightforward catch up with where the stock market was and where the bond market was. Those stocks and those bonds are just the best performing units <laughs> in the plague, and that's the exact opposite to what the World War II analogy would. You know, if you thought the World War II was good for anything, um, not worth it for sure with all the debts. But like, if it had it, if it had a good side effect, it seems to be exactly the kind of side effect that we don't have in play this time. I think that's a very serious concern. I don't think that the infrastructure bills... I, I think Lawrence Summers, who was the former head of the IMF and head of Harvard and whatnot, I don't know which Bretton Woods project he was at, but his argument earlier this year against Paul Krugman, which I think we discussed very briefly, was basically that if you give out all this free money, this free helicopter money, by the time you get to infrastructure spending, which has a real chance of adding value, Uh, getting good bang for your buck, it's not going to work because either you won't be able to pass it politically or you will, but you will have injected so much liquidity into the market that you will have created a bubble that is going to burst in a very ugly way. I think that's where they're sitting. And I don't think that there's a real chance that productivity growth is going to you know, if you've got enough productivity growth, then the bubble right. is no longer a bubble because everything else has grown. So now it's the right size. It's not Alice in Wonderland with like a giant Alice and tiny little chairs and <laughs> tables because the chairs and tables have also grown. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't see that happening in a real way because earnings to price ratios are not looking good. The stock market, the bond market in the US is so expensive. It's not making much outside of a few techies and Amazon. It's heavy days. Uh, Indeed. Not as heavy. I mean, they are spending some of their, they are spending some of the savings that they've, that they've accrued. And my friends in New York are definitely talking about a society that's getting back to the discotheque. But it's, <laughs> I don't think it's nearly enough. I, don't, I just don't see the efficiencies that you need to pay for the kinds of debts that they are incurring right now. And I think that, right, they are spending like, like it's going out of fashion. And I think that's, and I think that maybe that's just the final analysis, right? Is that like there's just no ways that there's no, there's no polite way of doing what the Democrats are trying to do. If you're trying to pass a huge, infra, if you're trying to pass an infrastructure spend on the back of a helicopter money spend, the way that they're trying to do it, whether you do it through the 80 billion infrastructure and then you don't say that you're going to try and shovel the rest down. Their throats through the budget cloture thing. Whether you admit it and then embarrass Lindsey Graham and then shove it all through the basically cancel the (laughs) filibuster. Maybe that is maybe that's just like the decorations on the not even rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. This is like just drawing something (laughs) on a napkin on the Titanic. So uh, I think
0: you you had another topic in mind that you wanted to talk about, but we are sort of four minutes over time. So I don't know if you want to get into that because it's it was quite a complex one.
1: It's a big one, yeah. No, let's. let's I, I, I'll just done, say let's it
0: for our next yeah
1: one. yeah. I I think that I this weekend we were away, uh, my, my my partner and I, uh, in the countryside, and on the drive we took. Uh, she read me a paper called "Fetishism, Anti-Authoritarianism, and Pragmatism" uh, by Bob Brandom, really on Richard Rorty. And Richard Rorty is a philosopher that I read. I've read quite a few of his texts. One of the greats from the later part of the American twentieth century. And Bob Brandom is at Pittsburgh University. I. Th- the most respected he- Hegelian philosopher in America, I think that's very fair to say a very serious guy's got a beard down to his belly button uh, and I think that the this 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 paper gave me an idea about how to think about contemporary American politics and contemporary South african politics race politics really actually um that That was exciting it 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 made me feel really hopeful actually it made me feel hopeful about critical race theory for the first time um, in a decade or so uh hopeful in the sense that maybe there's like some good truths that can you know that that you can throw out the bathwater keep the baby um that there's that there's maybe a way that you could persuade proponents of critical race theory to uh, to get really practical, in a, in an honest way, um, and I and I, I I really do like this, and hopefully by next week, my brain will not have turned to mush. I'm pretty sure that it won't. This is the, kind, the, the for some reason the ph- philosophical texts I find the easiest to remember. Um, so. Uh, so- Let us,
0: with with that in mind and with that uh, preview of what we're we're going to get into next week, hopefully we'll remember. Um, Let's start with the recommendations. I'm going to start with mine. Uh, I've been watching lots of videos recently about theology of all sorts of different groups, um, whether it be obscure Middle Eastern religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Uh, But I also came across a YouTube video uh, about Hinduism. Now, I don't know much about Hinduism, and I knew even less before I started watching videos from this channel on YouTube, um, but it is obviously a very big, important religion in the world, and it has, you know, millions and millions of of, of of devotees, and so I really wanted to dive into what they, you know, how Hinduism works and what it believes, and I came across this channel called the Ashra Bodha Center, and the uh, channel is also owned by a guy called Swami Mandanana, sorry, I can't pronounce it very well, it's a long, long India name. Anyway, the name of the video I'd recommend is uh, Avitada Non-Dual Spirituality, From Ancient India to Our Global Age. And basically he just goes through one of the principal schools of Hindu mysticism and thought. Um, which is uh, Advaita Vedanta, which is this idea that the whole universe is all made of one thing. Um, and it was just very interesting to understand. It really got me to properly understand Hinduism at least a little bit for the first time in my life. Uh, what's also quite nice about this guy is that he's a sort of very traditional scholar of Hinduism. Um, practitioner, not scholar, should I say. And so he gives a sort of quite old school version. Um, which I thought was quite interesting. Anyway, so that's that's my recommendation: um, non-dual spirituality from ancient India to the global age, to our global age.
1: Yeah, Gabriel, I'm very sympathetic with that. There's, I mean, precisely uh, one of the points of this paper and, and of a lot of the philosophical texts that excite me the most is a is a push against dualism. Um, my recommendation is a bit sillier although I really think it's quite soulful uh, in the good sense of that word. Uh, Bo Burnham is this comedian. He had a Netflix special called Inside, and it really is – I mean, it's become quite a cult hit. Uh, It's basically one dude in a room in lockdown – who had a contract to make a Netflix special in like April? Up and coming stand up comedian who like tells jokes and sometimes sings songs that are kind of funny, a little bit Flight of the Concord Z, a little bit something like that. Anyway, now there's no audience. So the option is to try and do a set without an audience and just add a laugh track. That seems terrible. So instead, he makes a kind of montage of videos some of them kind of like you know just him singing some of them like quite almost special effectsy but just with very minimal just like a light and a spinning ball and a small little room it's all made inside this room and some of it very dark but it's hilarious now i kind of he does start out which i think is interesting uh, reflection of the times because i don't think this is the kind of comedian he is i think he's uh, just sort of in this place and this time. Starts out sort of flagging. His first thing is like, here I... I can't sing the song, so I'm just going to ad-lib. Like, here I am. I'm just a white man who wants to make the world a better place. But I don't want to work too hard at it. Like, leaving my room is too much. So I'm just going to sing a song to make the world a better place like a white man can. But not a white savior, but a, but a nice guy. Please, can I help you? But without doing anything, can I, please, can I help you? I just want to help you. I, just, I don't want to do anything, but I want to help you. And then he goes on to a white woman. Dude, the white woman's Instagram is the best because it's like flowers in a field, golden retrievers bounding through the sunshine, a cloud in the sky. Is this heaven? No, it's a white woman's Instagram. <laughs> du- ba- du- ba- du. White woman's Instagram. When are we
0: gonna have the Gabriel Krauser musical? Because we really need it now. I, I, I in fact, maybe we should put it on an IRR musical.
1: <laughs> Dude, we must. He's definitely, he definitely should be part of the kind of IRR politically man, incorrect, uh, film screening it, thing. That- it, it's very clever and very, very funny. It's properly funny. Yeah. <laughs> Messages
0: we reappropriate uh, uh, Disney's *Pocahontas*, because the script of that film is could be argued to be the about the institute of race relations. It's about a group of people who come together to try and prevent racial conflict between other groups of people who are just seeking to enrich themselves or are driven by fear.
1: So, yeah, we'll it was my, it. That. that was my <laughs> grand's favorite Disney movie. So, I'm very down with that. My grand was a wise lady. Very much so. All right. Um, awesome. I think that's
0: all we have for today. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed our ramblings and rantings. And we will be back next week to expound on great philosophical content.
1: Or, no, or man. Don't, you mustn't make it. It's actually quite simple. Like, <laughs> really, good, really good philosophy is just a return to common sense. It's what happens yes, after yes. all of the nonsense. And then, it's you, it's yeah. It's yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> we'll let the listeners be the judge of that. <laughs> okay, yeah.
1: yeah. Negative feedback encouraged, please. <laughs> please. <laughs>
0: Excellent. All right. Cheers, everyone. Keep the flag of liberty flying. <laughs> ker 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 ker